Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Ever wondered what monetary policy is? Who's in charge of the national debt? Or why BRIC countries should concern you? Well, you're in the right place. Hello and welcome to It's the Economy, a new podcast series brought to you by Intelligence Squared. I'm Nicola Walton, and I'm not an economist, but I do think it's important that economics is accessible. The economy impacts every aspect of our lives, from how we work to where we live. But how much do we really understand about how big economic concepts and decisions affect us? In this podcast, I'll be breaking down complex economic ideas, so in the time it takes to have a cup of coffee, you'll understand what they mean and why they matter to us. In each episode, I'll be joined by an economics expert to talk us through it all. This week, we're looking at trade, and my guest is Alpesh Patel. He's an advisor to the British Government's Department for International Trade, and also a founding board member of the UK-India Business Council. Welcome to the podcast, Alpesh. Thank you very much. We usually kick off with definitions. Can you tell us what is meant by both trade and fair trade? Well, let me start with the easier one. Fair trade, uh, because I looked up, there's many organisations out there which promote fair trade, and uh, and some of them have got some very good definitions. And uh, these were a few bullet points of what they said covers fair trade. Trading practices are fair and not one-sided. Well, obviously open to interpretation there. Prices paid are fair and sufficient for producers and workers to earn more than enough to meet their day-to-day needs. Payments are often made in advance to ensure the supplier can fulfil orders. Producers and workers have a voice, whether organised into groups or involved in workplaces, where there is freedom of association and there are safe working conditions, non-discrimination and welfare of children. So that's, uh, I think, a a broad and uh, good description of fair trade. When we come to trade, what we're often talking about is goods and services in the narrow sense being exported. It's often what government means when it talks about trade. It means exports, selling goods and services abroad. But in the broader sense, of course, buying and selling, importing as well as exporting in goods and services. And increasingly, Western developed economies are talking in terms of services, legal services, digital services, uh, rather than old fashioned goods such as, say, furniture, for argument's sake. Can you explain what tariffs are? Yes, well, they're essentially taxes, but you can have financial and non-financial tariffs. So if we take the financial ones, there are tax on you know, somebody's trying to import, let's say I'm British, and I say, well, I'm going to impose a tariff on people making alcoholic drinks 
and trying to sell them into the United Kingdom because I want to protect my domestic scotch industry, for instance. That's a financial tariff. The bigger problem becomes the non-financial tariff, the regulations which you impose, the non-trade, uh, sorry, the trade barriers which lead to it being harder to undertake trade because whilst you're not saying you've got to pay me 10% of the cost of the goods you're importing, you're saying, well, you've got to meet all these other standards. Now, that might be fair if those, uh, and that's taking tariff in a broader sense, if those tariffs uh, improved, for instance, my safety. So if I'm importing, I don't know, children's teddy bears from China, I would expect my government to say, well, I, these are certain standards I want you to meet. Now, those won't, wouldn't traditionally be called tariffs, but they're regulatory measures, which are de facto tariffs because it imposes a cost upon the exporter in the other country. Each week, we look at a historical example of this episode's theme. In the past, countries used wars and plundering of riches to gain wealth. Now they use trade. One notable example is the formation of the common market in Europe, formerly known as the European Economic Union and now the EU. It was established after the Second World War. My producer, Lovejeet Daliwal, has been looking at what happened then and where we are now. At the end of the Second World War, Europe was determined that war should not happen again on its soil. So in 1950, the European coal and steel community began to unite countries economically and politically. The decade was still dominated by the Cold War, but the European project continued, and in 1957 the Treaty of Rome was signed, creating the European Economic Community, otherwise known as the Common Market. The six founding members were Belgium, France, Italy, Luxembourg, the Netherlands and West Germany. Barriers to the movement of goods, services, capital and labour were removed. Out went any national regulation favouring domestic industries or any other obstacles to a freer market. In came more cooperation between countries. It created a good period of economic growth. In time, new members joined, including the UK. Free trade flowed across borders. The six founding countries bloomed to 28, including those formerly behind the Iron Curtain. The EEC was now the European Union, and they even created a single currency, the euro. The EU trading bloc is probably one of the most successful in history. It's currently the world's largest trading bloc and largest economy. Alpesh, do you agree that the EU is one of the most successful trading blocs in history? It'd be very hard to disagree, but you've got to remember, you've got to think in terms of relative to the past of those countries as well. And for centuries, they had managed to, despite territorially occupying in and of themselves relatively small spaces in Europe, small geographies, they managed to bicker and fight and plunge the world into two world wars as well. Uh, so when we when we balance it against the low threshold of, well, at least we've not had a World War Three born out of Europe, that's a pretty low bar to set. And uh, but it, on a on a more realistic level of economic growth, yes, uh, you look at the 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 country's GDPs after they joined the EU compared to before, and and, and you know you could argue, well, that's not causation. It might have happened if they stayed out of it, and there are many countries outside of uh, the EU which have grown exponentially. China, India, for instance. But yes, I think uh, you'd be hard pressed to say it was a that it's a failed economic argument, unless you're on the sort of ultra right wing of the Brexit movement, as it were. 
Well, the EU is not the only trading bloc to be set up. There are a number of others too, aren't there? Yes. In actual fact, I was just looking at the UK's application to join what's called the Comprehensive and Progressive Agreement for Trans-Pacific Partnership, CPTPP. Yeah, it was a lot easier when it was just the EU. I mean, the Europeans have got a knack for this, but it's in, it's got 11 Indo-Pacific nations in it, and the UK's applied to join that. So it's it's one of many groups out there. And of course, you've got Latin America and North America, so you've got NAFTA as well. And then you've got Indo-Pacific, and, uh, sorry, the American uh, Pacific groups with uh, the United States and, and Japan and, uh, and and so on. So yes, and hopefully one day, I guess the idea is eventually one day, global economies level up that you just have one global approach. But uh, when you look at the disparity between nations and the wealth of nations, that will be, uh, I think, a, a couple of centuries away. But are trading blocks now breaking down and falling apart? I'm thinking of Brexit, of course, as you've already mentioned. Yes, I think I think if you say Brexit or you say NAFTA and the renegotiation, I, I, I don't think, it's the old English saying, isn't it? One swallow a summer does not make. I, I think it would be, I think it'd be wrong to say trading blocks are failing because I think Britain... Uh, Britain's exit from there was far more complicated than than just purely as a trading block. It was not what the British people wanted or a narrow majority of the British people wanted. And when you look at how the UK has been, in one sense you could say, yeah, what's a block? It's more than two countries. It's more than a bilateral treaty. So Britain's been making a series of bilateral treaties and applying to join these other Groups. Um, even before the pandemic, people were questioning the desirability of globalisation. And so do you expect that debate to continue? Very much so. I think what COVID has shown a, an even greater disparity between groups, between rich and poor, essentially, since we're talking about economics and trade. And once global restrictions are, listed, uh, are lifted on congregation, on, on freedom of association, I think you will see potentially even more protests because the argument presumably will be that we can see the extreme wealthy getting wealthier and so many left behind due to the argument will be insufficient healthcare. Now, I don't think that'll actually be the case in the UK because I'm proud to say I think we've done a a very good job with our healthcare, but I think in other countries that will most definitely lead to greater social problems in democracies. It won't happen in China because they rule with an iron grip, but it'll happen in potentially in a, a country like India because obviously of what's happening with COVID and the devastation. So free trade, that'll be the problem. It is the allocation of the wealth that's created from that by governments, how they spend that, and also the inefficiency of you know having a low tax base or corruption, all the other things which lead to the benefits, you know, having a golden goose, let's say, but not actually using the, the, the golden eggs for any for good use. Stat of the week. Now it's time for our stat of the week. Each week we'll be bringing you a figure that's often quoted in the press and seen as a key indicator of the health of the overall economy. This week, our stat is the trade deficit figure. For the UK, it was $8.7 billion in the three months to February 2021. Alpesh, what does that figure tell us? 
Well, the trade deficit is basically the gap between what the government is spending and what it's receiving in taxation. Uh, And the gap is what it has to borrow from international lenders, which could be other governments, it could be pension funds and so on. So that's your gap, that's your deficit. And you might ask, well, okay, what 8.7 billion, what does that mean as a number? Well, remember, we're a, what, $2.5 trillion economy, the GDP of the United Kingdom, so in in $2.8 trillion. So in one sense, you could argue it's not too large a sum, is is a deficit, has it grown is one thing we want to look at, which is generally seen as not a good sign, because you've got to pay this back, it's a debt. Are deficits in and of themselves bad? Well, not necessarily, because if you were borrowing that money because you were spending it on investing on bridges and roads and uh, uh, for, for things on investing where you expected a future return and getting tax revenues back, well, then that could be, just like with an individual's household, that could be quite a good thing to do. So in and of itself, it tells us we're borrowing more than we're earning as a country, but it's not necessarily negative, especially when interest rates at which we're borrowing on the international money markets are so low. That was Stat of the Week. And this week, we were looking at the trade deficit figure. And looking ahead, many countries seem to be pivoting towards the Asia-Pacific region. Do you think that's a good idea? Well, I do for a couple of reasons in broad terms for this for, for these reasons. First of all, if you look at wealth of nations, then presumably a pivot, an economic pivot towards that region should help elevate the wealth of those nations and and lead to greater prosperity, greater living standards as well. And then there's the political and security arguments. If, like me, you believe in democracy and don't believe in totalitarian regimes or communist regimes, then you want to mould or have other countries to have similar values to your own because you believe your values are worth having and that not all values are created equal, that communism is not equally beneficial to its people as democracy is. And if you believe that, then you want to be trading with those countries because, as I mentioned earlier, trade leads to that greater association between nations. There's a soft power there's a transmission of values and value systems. Conflict often arises because of disputes over scarce resources. If you are already relatively prosperous, then scarce resources become something less important in relative terms. Alpesh Patel, thank you for coming onto the podcast. Thank you. Thanks very much. If you enjoyed this episode, please take a moment to subscribe and rate and review It's The Economy on Apple Podcasts. It lets us know what you think and helps others to find the show. I'm Nicola Walton, and you've been listening to It's The Economy, brought to you by Intelligence Squared. This podcast was produced by Lovejeet Dhaliwal, with technical assistance from Mark Roberts and Catherine Hughes. The executive producer was Farah Jasset.